following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Glad that you've joined us this morning. Those of you who are joining us online, welcome. Glad you're here. If you're in the room this morning, you should have gotten one of these on your way in. A card uh, that says, you're invited to Easter. Uh, I want you to know, every one of you should have one of these cards or should get one before you leave, but this card is not for you, all right? Don't get me wrong, you are invited to Easter two weeks from today, but the purpose of these cards is for you to take one or to take a stack of them and to use them to invite other people to come and be with us, to come on Easter Sunday and hear the hope of the gospel. This year, from the beginning of the year, we're, we're uh, doing a deep dive into the story of scripture. We began with a sermon series called The Story of God. We're now in the middle of a sermon series called The Story of Us. And beginning Easter Sunday, we'll be talking about the story of life, the good news of the gospel, the work of Jesus on our behalf. And so we want to fill this place up with people who are here to hear that story. And this is a tool for you to be able to use to invite them. So take that one that you got, grab more on your way out, and let's invite folks. The other way that I want to ask you to invite people, let me, let me do it this way. How many of you, let me see a show of hands, how many of you have some form of a social media account? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everybody raise your hand up high. If you have any form of social media account, let me see your hand. Okay, keep your hands up, right? Everybody with your hands up, you have a very simple way of inviting people to Easter Sunday. Today at noon on our various social media platforms at IBC, we're going to be releasing an invitation video, a, a simple little video that we shot that not only is a, an invitation, but also helps walk our newcomers through what they'll experience when they visit IBC for the first time. So be on the lookout for that today at noon and simply like, share, retweet, email people. It's just a simple way for you to invite people to be here with us two weeks from today for the celebration of Easter. All right, grab your Bibles and let's dive in this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter one. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter one, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And uh, as we begin this morning, I, I want to tell you a simple little story, but that's just always sort of stuck with me that I, that I first read in a book called The Dangerous Act of Worship by Mark Laberton. Mark Laberton is the, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, but he, he tells this story about the time when he was a pastor and there was a worship gathering uh, put on by young adults in his church, organized for the whole church, but, but put on by the young adults. And, and there was one person who was kind of the designated leader of this worship evening who came up in front of the crowd the first night, invited them to stand and, and open with a passionate word of prayer and then took his place in front of the people on the front row of this worship gathering. And as the music started, as the band began to play, as everybody began to lift their voices in song, he was in it, right? I mean, he was striking the pose. He had his hands in the air, eyes closed, just singing out of the top of his lungs. But, but as Mark Laberton observed this young man passionately engaged in worship, what he didn't realize was he was stepping on the toes of the people on the front row, right? That he had taken his spot right in front of them. And in his passionate engagement and worship, he was completely oblivious to the fact that he was stepping on the toes of his neighbors. Now, that's a simple little story, but it actually illustrates something far more significant. 
something far more significant that, that we actually see in the, the history of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, that we see throughout the history of the church, that we see in our world, in our church, in North America today. And that is that we can be engaged with God in worship and completely miss our neighbors. And this, my friends, is a subject that God takes very, very seriously. We are in the fifth week of this sermon series, The Story of Us, where we're looking back at the story of Israel, the the experience of, of Israel between Exodus and exile. And we're using Israel's story as a kind of mirror in which to see ourselves, recognizing that there were these patterns that recur in the story of Israel that are similar patterns that continue to recur in our lives today. These patterns are ultimately what led Israel into the experience of exile, the experience of God's judgment. And as we look at them, we see ourselves. And if you look back at the Old Testament prophets who warned of this day that was coming, this day of exile that was ahead of them, there were two sins that the prophets consistently warned God's people about. The first one we talked about last week, idolatry. And the second, we talk about this week, injustice. The the two twin sins of the people of Israel were fundamentally the failure to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. To elevate something or someone above God himself. And a failure to love their neighbors as themselves. That we can be engaged with God in worship and become oblivious to the reality of our neighbors in need. I want to get at this subject by taking you to this passage in Isaiah chapter 1. But I want to tell you up front. And when we talk about the subject of, of justice uh, in the church today. I, I enter into talking about the subject with a little bit of fear and trembling. right? Because this word justice is, is a, a rather freighted word in our cultural moment. Right? I mean, there, it seems to me kind of a spectrum of responses to this idea of justice. On the one hand, you have people who care deeply about the concept of justice who have no concern for the Bible, right? People within our broader culture who have a, a, a real concern for this concept of justice, but, but have no real concern for the Bible. In fact, some of them explicitly reject the Bible because they believe it doesn't actually lead to justice. In fact, it might even perpetuate injustice. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum are those who, who care deeply about the Bible, but have real concerns about this concept of justice. And for some, that's because of a, of a concern, a fear that, that, that secular concepts of justice are being imported into our understanding of the Bible. The, the, the concern gets raised about um, social justice and the, the ways in which a, a kind of Marxist worldview might infiltrate that understanding of social justice. People that speak pejoratively of social justice warriors or speak about preachers like me who talk about justice as woke. And, and so there are these extremes on either end, people who are deeply concerned about justice who have no concern for the Bible or people who are deeply concerned about the Bible who have real concerns about this concept of justice. And regardless of where you are on that spectrum at one end or the other or somewhere in between this morning, I want to show you that these two things belong together that the God of the Bible is profoundly concerned with the concept of justice 
And he calls his people to be profoundly concerned about the concept of justice. But this morning, we need to clarify what justice is all about. What is biblical justice? So I got more Bible in this sermon than a lot of them usually have. So uh, buckle up, let's get ready. But I want to start with you here in Isaiah chapter 1. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning of verse 10. Here, here the Lord is speaking through the prophet to his people. Right? He's speaking to the people of Israel, but notice the way he begins. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Right? Pause right there. This is, this is, um, this is um, divine sarcasm. Right? God is speaking to his people, the people of Israel, but he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know anything about the Bible, you know this is, a, this is a, an insult. Right? This is talking about people who seriously had gone away from the, the, the intention of God. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come and appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Now pause right there. What in the world is going on? Right? God here lists this, this litany of, of, the spiritual practices, we might call them the spiritual disciplines of the people of Israel. And if you go down this list, what you find is, is each one of these things that God lists are things that God himself explicitly commanded his people to do. Sacrifices, assemblies, Sabbath days, worship gatherings, prayer. And yet here God, looking at these things that he has commanded his people to do, says, I can't stand it. He says, I, I detest it with all my being. I, I, when, you, when, you, when you gather, I hide my eyes. When you pray, I am not listening. Why on earth would God respond to the spiritual disciplines of his people that he has commanded them to engage in this kind of way? Look what he says next in the middle there, verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The Lord rejects these spiritual practices of the people of Israel because they've completely lost sight of their neighbors in need. He says here, your hands, are, your hands are full of blood. If at the beginning we have divine sarcasm, here we have perhaps divine hyperbole. Right? Not every Israelite actually had blood on their hands, were, were um, culpable, um, had committed some kind of violence. And yet what he's saying is you've, you've become complicit in this. You've tolerated injustice in the nation. 
And he says, to, to, to stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the cause of the orphan and the widow. We have here a couple of, of people that recur throughout the Old Testament as what biblical scholars refer to as the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable, that is the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. The quartet of the vulnerable. And God has this profound concern time after time after time after time. He calls his people to pay attention to the most vulnerable members of their society. This is part of what it means to do biblical justice. To give attention to the most vulnerable of society. God says, I'm not interested in all your spiritual disciplines. If you're not taking care of your neighbors in need. Now, in order to get at this concept of biblical justice, in order to understand positively what it is that we're talking about, that we're pursuing, I want to I think about that. I want to unpack that with you under the heading of, first, the character of God, second, the catastrophe of sin, and third, the call of God's people. The character of God, the catastrophe of sin, and the call of God's people. With the character of God, we want to just look at a number of passages that speak to this issue of God's character as it relates to justice. One of those is in Psalm 89, verse 14. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The word righteousness there is tzedakah. Can I hear you say that? Tzedakah. You got to get the T-Z together at the beginning of the word. Tzedakah. Tzedakah. Righteousness, tzedakah, and mishpat, justice. Let me hear you say mishpat. Mishpat. Tzedakah and mishpat. And what you find is you look through the Bible, these two concepts are bound up together. Tzedakah and mishpat. Righteousness and justice. They're bound together like a married couple. But unlike our marriages, these two are never in conflict, Right? Tzedakah and Mishpat. Tzedakah is, is living rightly. Mishpat is setting things right. Tzedakah, this idea of righteousness, living rightly, it is an ethical standard by which we relate to each other. And we treat one another as image bearers of God. We treat one another the way people deserve to be treated. That we, we treat one another with the kind of dignity, the kind of honor, the kind of equality that is due to human beings. That's righteousness, living rightly. Tzedakah. But mishpat is what happens when tzedakah breaks down. Right? If, if everybody lived righteously, there would be no need for justice. But mishpat is what takes on when tzedakah breaks down. It is Setting things right. It is the recognition that, that oftentimes uh, people, especially the most vulnerable, um, suffer from abuse of power. That God recognizes this tendency. That's not a modern tendency. It's not a, a Western tendency. It's not an American tendency. It's a human tendency. It's as old as the Bible itself. That the most vulnerable are oftentimes um, uh, oppressed or... or um, pushed down by those who hold the power. And so it's a particular kind of concern for those who are the most vulnerable. Mishpat can refer to 
the idea of distributive justice. And distributive justice is, is sort of the bad people getting what's coming to them, right? It's punishment for wrongdoers. But the concept of mishpat is much more than just distributive justice. It is actually also restorative justice. It's seeing to it that, that those who have been harmed are cared for and provided for. Um, perhaps the, the best, most simple little framework for thinking about the, the biblical concept of, uh, of mishpat, of, of justice. I, I actually learned from one of my former students, one of my friends and former students, Nancy Frazier, talks about the idea that biblical justice is to comfort those who have been injured, right, who have suffered injustice, to comfort, to confront those people and systems that are perpetuating injustice, and then to correct, to, to comfort, to confront, and to correct those people or systems that are perpetuating injustice. This is what biblical justice is all about. And here's the deal. Once again, what we find is that some people are really concerned about righteousness, living rightly, but they miss the emphasis on justice, setting things right. Other people are very concerned about justice, setting things right, but they fail to recognize the call of God to live righteously. But here we're told the throne of God is on the foundation of these two concepts bound together, righteousness and justice. Now, from time to time, I get invited to, to other places to speak. Uh, I'll get invited to another church or I'll get invited to, uh, to, to seminary, something like that. And I'll get the opportunity to speak. And they'll always ask me to provide for them some kind of a, a way that I want to be introduced Right? How should we introduce you to the people that you're going to speak to? And oftentimes the way that introduction goes, the, the basic gist of it is Barry Jones has a PhD in theology from Wheaton College. He's the senior pastor of Irving Bible Church. He's married to Kim and he's the father of Will, Pearson, and Kathleen. Right? Something like that. That basically lists my accomplishments, what I do, and my relationships. Right? Does that make sense? Right? That's the way that I get introduced out there in the world. What's interesting in light of that, to look at the way that God gets introduced in the Bible. When God is introduced, we oftentimes see the same pattern, his accomplishments, the work that he does, and his relationships. For example, um, Deuteronomy, sorry, Psalm 89, verse 14. No, that's the one we just did, isn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, beginning of verse 17, it says, for the Lord... Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those that are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Do you see the pattern there? A, a, an introduction of God that says, this is, this is who God is. This is his accomplishments. This is what he does. This is who he's related to. And here, it's specifically pointed to God's concern for the most vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. You see it again in a passage like Psalm 146. Psalm 146, he, that is God, upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. 
but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. You see, again, this idea of God's introduction here in uh, Psalm 68, verse 5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Each of these highlight who God is by highlighting what he does and how he relates to the most vulnerable in society. This is what the Sri Lankan biblical scholar um, Vinath Ramakandra calls the scandalous justice of God. The scandalous justice. What's the scandal? The scandal is to think about all of the gods of the ancient world, right? All the gods of Israel's neighbors, the gods of Israel's neighbors, the gods of the ancient world, all identified with the powerful. All the gods of the ancient world identified with the kings, with the military leaders, with the conquerors. All those gods identified with the powerful. God identifies with the weak and the vulnerable. This is the way in which God introduces himself. He is the one who takes care of, who provides for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the most vulnerable within society. This is who God is. In fact, he goes so far in the Bible as to identify with these vulnerable ones by saying what you do to them, you do to him. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever's kind to the needy honors God. Five chapters later in Proverbs 19, you see the same idea. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will repay them for what they have done. Whatever you do to to the most vulnerable, you do to God himself, he says. This is scandalous. Because the other gods all identify with the powerful. God identifies with the weak and the vulnerable. This is his character. The core of the character of God. Righteousness and justice. But from the character of God, then we have to talk about the catastrophe of sin. A number of weeks ago now, we talked about the story from Genesis chapter three, when sin enters into the story, sin enters into human history. And we talked about there, this act of cosmic treason, cosmic rebellion, wherein that first couple go their own way, determine they don't want to submit themselves to the way of God, but they want to be a law unto themselves to go their own way. And what happens when sin enters the story is that there is this inward turn that they experience, that is the reality that all of us are born into. The reality of the inward turn. This wonderful little Latin phrase that I love so much to describe what's wrong with human beings in their fallenness. Homo incurvatus in se. That is, the being turned in upon himself. The being turned in upon herself. And I I think that if you will think about your most persistent struggles in this life, those things that that choke the life out of you, those patterns in your life and your relationships that you know dishonor God and are not good for you, what you'll find that at the base of that is this idea of homo incurvatus inside, the being turned in upon himself. This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of depravity. And this inward turn 
is something that characterizes every human being. The doctrine of depravity says that, that this, um, uh, the brokenness of sin affects us in, in every aspect of our life. It affects our, our minds. It affects our hearts. It affects our volition, our choices, our will. But not only does the doctrine of depravity suggest that, that, that sin infects our souls, but also that sin infects our societies and even our systems. The, the, the depravity says that human beings that are infected by sin create human families that are infected by sin, that create human communities that are infected by sin. And that, that the, 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 the reality of sin pervades our souls, our societies, our systems. It's interesting to me to note that actually this doctrine of depravity was presupposed in the founding of our American political system. Part of what makes our American political system great is that the founders actually understood and built the system with the understanding of the doctrine of depravity. The, the, the idea that sin infects souls and systems and societies. And so the whole idea of things like limited government, things like um, representative democracy, things like checks and balances, all assume the doctrine of depravity. Here's the way that, uh, that uh, James Madison puts it. He says, what is government itself but the greatest reflection of human nature? Watch this. If men were angels, if people were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern people, neither external nor internal controls of government would be necessary. What's he saying? If people were not fallen, if people were not sinful, we wouldn't need any government. If, if, if our government was not prone to the effects of sin, we wouldn't need external or internal controls. That this idea of the doctrine of depravity is presupposed even in the establishment of our American political system. It's presupposed in our constitution. And tragically, it's not only presupposed in our constitution, but it's even on display there, right? Because as you may recall, enslaved people in our constitution were considered three-fifths of a person, the reality of depravity infects us all. It infects souls, and societies, and systems. And the pursuit of justice is to comfort those who have suffered or been held down because of the reality of depravity and to confront and correct both those individuals and those systems that perpetuate it. This is the nature of biblical justice. Based in the character of God, responding to the catastrophe of sin. So let's talk finally about the call of God's people. In light of God's character, in the midst of this catastrophe, what are we called to do in response? And one verse that I just love that I think speaks to this reality, you find in Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31 says this to God's people. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. There's a wonderful little simple way of capturing the, the, the call of God's people. To speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. To leverage what you have for people who need it. 
That's what it means for us to live in righteousness and justice. Tzedakah and Mishpat, to leverage what we have for people who need it. If it's your voice, raise it. If it's your vote, cast it. If it's your money, give it. If it's your time, invest it. Some of us in this room have unique um, skills to be able to invest on behalf of people around us in need. Some of us in this room have unique resources to be able to give to help meet needs. Some of us in this room have unique passions that God has placed upon your heart. Part of the way in which we respond to the reality of the brokenness of this world is to say, God, what breaks my heart that breaks yours? And then what can I do about it? And I think it's important just for us to acknowledge this isn't something that only a select few are called to. This is something that all of us as God's people are called to reflect upon. What do I have that I can invest for the sake of those who need it? Now, if the sermon ended right here, it would be a bad sermon, right? And some of you are going, Barry, I I don't need you to tell me it's a bad sermon. (laughs) Hang with me. If the sermon ended here, it would, all, it would be all about do, 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 what, all that we're supposed to do. And we'd, we'd wind up uh, feeling sort of guilty for not doing it. And so we would say, okay, I got to do, I got to figure out what to do. And, and we would be responding out of completely the wrong motivation. That the sermon has to end by talking about the motivation for God, for God's people to live out their calling, to leverage what they have for the sake of those who need it. And that is the reality that we do this precisely because we have been the recipients of God's radical grace, God's radical compassion, God's radical generosity. We pursue justice because we are the justified, right? We, we are the people who have been set right with God, justification. Therefore, we pursue set rightness in the world, justice. I, I love the way that the... Uh, that the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins captures this when he says, the just man justices, <laughs> right? The person who is set right with God pursues things being set right in the world. We as God's people are called to pursue justice precisely because we have been the recipients of God's radical grace, God's radical compassion, God's radical generosity. This is what justification is all about. And justification people need to be justice people. Sometimes I think we get justification wrong. Sometimes we tend to think about this idea of justification as, as though it's merely forgiveness. As, as though I had this massive debt and I'm completely broke. And so I come to the banker to confess. I have this massive debt and I can't pay it. I'm completely broke. And we think of justification as though what the banker does at that moment is to to look at me completely broke, can't pay my debt, and says, your debt is paid, you're free to go. What's the problem on that scenario? The problem on that scenario is I'm still completely broke, right? But that's not what justification is. Justification is more than mere forgiveness. Justification is I'm completely broke, and I go to the banker, and I confess the reality. I am completely broke, And he says, your debt is paid, but not just that. 
I'm making you my heir. I'm calling you my son. And everything I have is yours. That's justification. And that's the reason that justification people are supposed to be justice people. Because we have been the recipients of God's radical grace. God's radical compassion. God's radical generosity. Therefore, we are called to be people of radical grace. Radical compassion. Radical generosity. The just person. Justices. And look back to the very end of Isaiah 1. Right on the heels of this stinging rebuke of his people, God says this in verse 18. Come, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. We have been the recipients of God's radical grace, God's radical compassion, God's radical generosity. And in light of that, let us be people characterized by radical grace, radical compassion, radical generosity. The people of Israel worshiped God but lost sight of their neighbors. Let it never be true of us. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.